Good morning, everybody. If we haven't met, my name is David. I'm the pastor here. It's my great privilege to speak with you this morning. If you haven't got a copy of the sermon notes, please put your hand up and someone will bring them to you. Uh, just a little um, notes of where we're going, what we're talking about today. And as was mentioned earlier, there are questions on the back for you to complete at home or as part of a small group. Find a group of friends, get together, talk about what we've talked about on Sunday. There's the old expression, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Anyone have a mum or a dad who used to say that to you? If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. And what's the second line? Don't exaggerate. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, don't exaggerate. Repetition can be a good teacher. There's a car out there which is just shining me right in the face. Can someone shut half that door or something? Um, and whoever parked there, don't park there again. No, the sun will move next week. So I've either got to stand here or over there. Sorry, cameraman. Good man. Thank you for shutting that door. Um, repetition can be a good teacher. Sometimes uh, we, we, we hear things, we learn things, we say them over and over again, and eventually we memorize them. So who this morning can recite for me Mark chapter 1, verse 15? Some people confident you can? Off you go, Ian. That's pretty close. We'll say it all together. Here we go. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I think you got it word perfect. Well done, sir. Repetition. We've been saying this verse almost every Sunday for almost a year. That's good, isn't it? You're going to get it into your heads. Repetition can be a good teacher. And we learn these words of Jesus. Repent and believe this good news. The kingdom of God has come near. As an old, now he's opening the door again. Now I can't see. What are you doing to me, Mark? That's why he shut the door. Oh, Mark, you're a wonderful man and I love you. By the way, I meant to announce before, which I've in my baby time and other things, we've got an old air conditioner upstairs and an old colour printer that we don't need anymore. If you would like an air conditioner or a colour printer, please speak to Mark. That's the man right there who just blinded me. Um, speak to Mark after the meeting this morning and he'll help you take them away uh, upstairs. Why was I saying that? Because he blinded me. There's the old story of the preacher, a preacher, and he was regarded as a good preacher, and someone said to him, what's your secret to preaching? He says, well, I do three things. I tell them what I'm going to tell them, then I tell them, then I tell them what I told them. Have you heard this before? I tell them what I'm going to tell them, then I tell them, then I tell them what I told them. And sometimes this is used as an example for how to write an essay in high school. In your first paragraph, you outline your argument, then you have the rest of the paragraphs arguing it, and then in the conclusion, you say it all again. And sometimes repetition happens in that way, and it's a good way to remember. Here, we seem to have a repetition of the same kind of story that we read just a few chapters before. And this is what's called a story cycle. And it seems to happen not just with this story, but the stories around it, they match a pattern. So remember in Mark chapter 5 and leading into 6, uh, all the things that were happening there um, and feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6, the stories that were happening was that, well, first of all, Jesus comes out and proclaims the kingdom of God in word and deed by healing, by casting out evil spirits, doing all these things. 
Then the next thing happens is that a large crowd gathers around Jesus. This happens because he's doing these miraculous things. In chapter 6 and here again in chapter 8, they're in a wilderness place. There's no food. So Jesus provides food. And we talked a lot about how that was a repetition of what Moses had done in the Old Testament, that Jesus was demonstrating that he is like Moses. And then the authorities come and criticize Jesus or question Jesus. This happened before in chapter 6. Some Pharisees come and criticize Jesus and his disciples. And then after this, Jesus withdraws for a little while. And we talked about that. So from our last time through this story cycle, Jesus fed the 5,000 in the wilderness. They came and criticized him. He gave some teaching about clean and unclean foods. Do you remember that? And Jesus walked away from Galilee. He went into a foreign country where he met the woman, the Gentile woman, the story of the dogs and those things. We talked about that last week or a week before that. This story is happening again here in chapter 8. People are gathering around Jesus. The large crowd, another large crowd gathers around him. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called them together. The large crowd gathers in response to the kingdom message and the demonstration. This is following up from the the opening up of the deaf and mute man that we spoke about last week. Jesus does this amazing miracle. He tries to do it secretly, but the people spread the news, and so people come to him from all over. They spend some days with Jesus. In fact, he says they spent three days with him. He looks on them and has compassion. He has pity on them. They've already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. They've come prepared. They've come expecting to spend some time with Jesus. But after three days, they've run out. They've run out of local food. They've run out of food. And if there is a village nearby, no doubt the shop is sold out of chips and burgers and things because this crowd has just come from all over and the village isn't prepared to deal with it. They're a long way from other villages. There's not enough food. And Jesus has compassion on these people. His concern is for their travel home. He says, if if I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way. Because some of them have come a long distance. This story is probably still in the Decapolis, the ten towns that we spoke about last week and some weeks before. Remember, this is the area in chapter 5 where Jesus cast the the legion of demons out of the man. And then the people of that area said, please go away, you're too scary. So Jesus said to the man who he had delivered, he said, you stay here and tell everyone what God has done for you. And so here in chapter 8, chapter 7 and chapter 8, when Jesus comes back to this region, the man who had the legion of demons cast out of him has done his job. And everybody in that part of the world has heard of Jesus. He went and told everyone what Jesus had done. So when Jesus comes back to this part of the world, this part of that world, that part of Israel on that side of the lake, the people are eager to see him. They're not scared of him anymore. They want to hear him. They want to hear his stories. They want to hear his teaching. They want to be healed. They come from all over the region. And when Matthew tells this same story in chapter 15, he puts it like this. So Matthew and Mark are telling the same story in slightly different ways. Matthew says it like this, great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. 
The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. This is the picture of this vast crowd that have gathered around Jesus for these three days as he has taught and healed and reached out and done miracle after miracle after miracle. His people have gathered at his feet and Jesus is dealing with each and every single one of the people with a need. And so Jesus has compassion on them. He doesn't want to send them home hungry. They've been loyal to him, spending these three days, waiting patiently for their turn, waiting to come and sit at the feet of Jesus and be healed. And after they've all gone through, he's gone through the whole crowd and dealt with all their problems, he says they're going to go home hungry. He has compassion on them. His heart breaks for them. So he says to his disciples, what? I have, I'm sorry for these guys. Where did you give them some food? The disciples, of course, are intensely practical. Where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Where in this remote place can anyone get the bread to feed them? And those of us who are paying attention have been walking our way through the Gospel of Mark will go, well, three chapters ago it wasn't a problem at all. Jesus solved this problem. We're in the same problem again. Jesus fixed it just a few chapters ago. Why are they concerned about this? Why don't the disciples say to Jesus, well, do what you did last time. Here's some bread. Go and fix the problem. Why don't they? Well, there's possible options. Maybe these are different set of disciples. Because it says disciples. It doesn't say apostles. We're not talking necessarily about the same 12. We know from chapter 6 that Jesus has been sending his disciples off to do mission work. So maybe the original guys who were there when he fed the 5,000 are out in the field and he's training another set or he's... Maybe he's cycling them through. Maybe these ones didn't see the last miracle. That seems unlikely, to be honest, particularly from the passage we'll talk about in a few weeks' time that follows on from this one where Jesus says, do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? Maybe the disciples thought that the last time was a one-off. That was a one-time only miracle, never to be repeated. They haven't seen Jesus walk on the water again. That would seem to be a one-time only thing. Why would he do that same miracle again? And the whole Moses symbolism thing brought the religious leaders out in opposition. Jesus had to leave the country last time he fed a massive crowd like this. Maybe they think to themselves, if Jesus feeds another bunch of people, we're going to have to go and live overseas. Best not to do it again. Or maybe enough time had passed that it didn't occur to them. For us, it's only, what, a page There's a page between chapter 8 and chapter 6 where Jesus feeds the 5,000. But how many days and weeks and months does that represent? We don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. It's certainly a good couple of weeks. Jesus has walked out up into the north into Sire and Sidon and come around through the long way back into the Decapolis. How long has it been? Long enough that perhaps their first answer isn't to say, just do it again, Jesus. But Jesus is also very practical. He doesn't give them a speech. He doesn't give them a lecture. He doesn't give them a sermon. He just says, how many loaves do you have? What have you got? Here we have people who are hungry. What have you got? How much have you got to help these people? The answer comes back, seven. Seven. Last time it was five. This time it's seven. Numbers can have meaning in Scripture. They can have symbolic meanings. 
uh, mostly in Revelations, where the numbers have hidden readings, hidden meanings, 12,000 this and 12,000 of that and 140,000 of these and so on. And when we get to Mark chapter 14, we will take an excuse to go to Revelations for a few weeks. So if you're holding on to hear me talk about Revelations, probably this time next year we'll be in Mark chapter 14, and that'll get us into Revelations. So, you know, just be patient. Just be patient. Numbers can have symbolic meanings. So maybe this is just a coincidence that they had seven, or maybe there is a special meaning here. What does seven represent in the Bible? It's a number of completion. The day of rest is the seventh day. The God who made the world in six days and then rested on the seventh has all things in his hands. He knows what's what. He knows what he's about. And he's creating still. So maybe the number of loaves is symbolic of this goodness of God, creating and able to do these things and being in control. Or maybe they did have eight loaves and someone ate one for breakfast. We don't know. Either way, Jesus takes these seven loaves and he does a repetition of what we read about in chapter 6. He makes the people sit down on the ground. He organizes them. Everybody sit down and watch what's about to happen. He wants everybody to see. He does it publicly, what he's about to do. This is a public miracle, a public demonstration. Then he takes the seven loaves and he gives thanks. And maybe he prays a prayer like our Jewish friends do today on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, the Jewish people, when they break the bread for their Shabbat dinner, they say a prayer that says, Blessed are you, eternal our God, sovereign of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Maybe that's the prayer he prays. Maybe he prays the traditional Sabbath prayer. Baruch atah Adonai. My Hebrew is no good. We'll stop there. He breaks the bread in front of them. He shows them, this is all I've got, these seven loaves, nothing up my sleeves. Here are my seven loaves. I break them in front of you. He gives them to his disciples to distribute, just as he did last time. He breaks the bread and gives it to them, and as the disciples hand it out, that's when it multiplies. It multiplies in the hands of the disciples. There's lots of Moses symbolism here again, just as we talked about in chapter 6. And if you didn't hear that message or you weren't here that week, it's online, it's in our podcast, you can visit our website and hear me go on and on about that probably a month ago now. So there's lots of Moses here, but there's also a little bit of Elisha. And I forgot to talk about Elisha last time, I probably didn't have time last time in chapter 6, but Elisha, the prophet, has done things like this as well. And so we go to 2 Kings chapter 42. 2 Kings, no, chapter 4, verses 42 and onwards. Elisha is one of the great Old Testament prophets. There's Elijah, whose name means the Lord is God. And then there's Elisha, his assistant, who becomes the great prophet, whose name means the Lord is peace. Here comes Elisha. He does a whole series of miracles in 2 Kings. Um, he heals, brings a little girl back from the dead and a little boy, can't remember. Does a whole lot of stuff. Uh, you remember, maybe you know the story of the people who were sharing a pot. In chapter 4, there's a, a famine in that part of the land. All the prophets gather together to care for each other and help each other out, the prophetic community, and they have a, symbol, they have a pot that they share together. And One bloke finds a bunch of stuff growing in the fields and goes, oh, this will look all right. He chops it up and chucks it in the pot, and it turns out it's poisonous. And it's the old expression, oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. 
It's one of my favorite verses from the Old Testament. Man of God, there is death in the pot. If you ever want to quote the Bible to someone, quote that. Uh, and, and Elisha does praise to God and solves the problem and doesn't kill them. And immediately after that story, the famine continues. They're still hungry. They've run out of food. There's nothing to feed them. And it's, the story goes like this. A man came from Baal Shalishah, so some town, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe corn. Corn isn't maize, the yellow stuff that we eat. Corn means grain, baked from the first grain, along with some ears of new corn of grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. If you know anything about the servant of Elisha, he's always asking questions. His name's Gehazi. He's always getting into trouble for things. He comes to, my, to the prophet and says, how can, this isn't enough. How can I set this before a hundred men? But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. And he said it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. So not only in Jesus doing this miracle is he uh, copying and adding to and improving upon the miracles of Moses, but he's copying and adding to and improving upon the miracles of Elisha, or two of the great Old Testament prophets. And Jesus is doing the same thing again here for his followers in the wilderness. Verse 7, they had a few small fish as well. Last time they counted them, this time they didn't bother. He gave thanks for them as well and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Again, the same as the last miracle. They picked up seven basketfuls. Again, there's that number seven, the symbolism of that. But instead of seven loaves, now there are seven basketfuls. God is able to take what's small and make it great. And the people have eaten all that they could and were satisfied. And then we get the number. There are about 4,000 present. It's a big miracle, as Stefano says, but it's not as impressive as the last one. There's a 1,000 less people here. But still, it's very public, very symbolic. Bread and meat in the wilderness a very public declaration is a prophet like Moses, a prophet like Elisha, and even better. But the story doesn't end here. It carries on into the next section. The verse marker for, for verse 9 comes partway through the sentence. And if you've got a Bible that divides your Bible into chunks uh, to tell the stories, maybe your story has, maybe yours is split into two chunks. Good Bibles shouldn't have that, but maybe yours does. And if it does, you'll notice that chapter, verse 9 is half in one chunk and half in the other because the sentence just runs on. Verse 10 says, he got into the boat. And the literal Greek says, at once. At once he got into the boat. This isn't just another thing that happened. This is part of that same story. He gets into the boat. He goes to another part of the lake. The region of Dalmanutha goes across the lake. It's only a little lake. It's only, what, an hour or two to row across. He comes across the lake and he encounters the Pharisees. In verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. Matthew says the Sadducees came as well. Here the Greek that means question is also the word that means began to argue. They began to dispute with him. They began to debate with him. They began to criticize him and complain with him. They came to test him. Why do I keep clicking? 
They came to test him, tempting him. The word test here is the same as the word for temptation. It's the same word that's used here in Mark chapter 1 where the devil came to tempt Jesus. They came to test him. They came to tempt him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. We hear you're doing all these things out in the wilderness to make people think you're a great prophet like Moses or Elisha. Well, show us. Show us your great things. Show us a sign from heaven. A sign from heaven they want. The things that he's been reported as doing are impressive, but we want full confirmation. We want the whole thing. We want you to prove it to us here and now. Go on, do it. I dare you. 4,000 people have just seen him do a sign from heaven. 4,000 people have just seen him do a miracle just on the other side of the lake. But that's not good enough for these Pharisees. 5,000 people saw the same thing a few weeks or a few months earlier. And there are at least 12 disciples who've seen Jesus do all sorts of amazing things, like walking on water and calming the storm. And many thousands of people who've either witnessed amazing healings or have themselves been healed. But the Pharisees don't want to listen to those witnesses. They come and they tempt Jesus to do it again. Do it now. Do it here in front of us. Show us. After the feeding of the 5,000, the Pharisees came and criticized Jesus for letting his disciples break the ceremonial rules of washing. This time, they're coming at Jesus directly. If you are the Messiah, prove it. Prove it, here and now. If you are the Christ, do something impressive that will impress us. We get to decide if you're the Messiah or not. This is one of those things that so frustrates me about atheists. And I told this story a few weeks ago, but I'll tell it again. A friend of mine who came and said, well, I'm an atheist. And I said, well, don't you realize how offensive that is? Because we're good friends. You say there's absolutely no reason there's a God, and I say there is. So you must be calling me a liar. You don't trust me. You don't believe what I have to say. You're not even willing to listen to my stories. And this young man, his mum, his dad, his sister, were all good Christians. And he goes and says he's an atheist. He's insulting his mum, his father, his sister, saying their word is of no account. It's so frustrating. You say, I'm, a, I'm an honest broker. You believe me about everything else. You trust me to drive you in a car. You trust me to, I don't know, do all these things. But when it comes to the things of God, you're not even willing to listen to me. It's so frustrating. I imagine you all feel the same way when you encounter people who just will not listen, who want to see something. If you haven't proved it to me personally here on the spot, it's not true. It's so very frustrating. And Jesus sighs deeply. Ah, it must have been so frustrating for him as well. Two weeks in a row we've read of Jesus sighing. Last, time, last week we talked about Jesus sighing deeply when he healed the man who was deaf and mute. He sighed and looked up to heaven. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh and says, be opened. Well, here, this same story again, it repeats that word, but emphasizes it even more. Last week the word was 
Where is it? Stanazzo. The Greek word stanazzo. He signed. This word of the week is anastanazzo, which means he really sighed. If you thought he was sighing last week, this week he's really sighing. And it even goes on to say in the Greek, he was groaning in his spirit. This is just an exasperated, he can't get over how annoying these people are, how frustrating they are. They come and demand a sign. And he says to them, why does this generation ask for a sign? This generation, the word there is genera, uh, uh, um, the Greek word is genera, which we get the word generation from, uh, and it means a type of people, this kind of people. Um, Why do these kind of people come and ask me for a sign? I don't think he's talking about all of Israel, the whole people alive at that time, because most of them have already seen the signs, or many of them have. It's just this particular group, these religious add your own word there, these religious jerks who come and ask Jesus for this sign when he's been doing signs all over the place. Not good enough for them. And he's utterly disgusted with them. Truly I tell you, the word truly there is the word amen. We talked about that before, that when Jesus wants to say something with emphasis, he says amen. Sometimes he says amen, amen. Here it's just one amen. He hasn't got time for him. He can't even be bothered giving them two amens. He says, truly I say to you guys, you're not getting a sign. Not going to happen. You can't be bothered to come to the other side of the lake where I'm doing stuff. You can't be bothered to come and see the things I'm doing. You just want to make demands of me? No. Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to you. Except the sign of Jonah. Mark doesn't say this, but Matthew does. When Matthew's telling this same story in chapter 16, let's read Matthew's version very quickly. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, so here's an interesting thing. The Sadducees don't get mentioned in Mark because Mark's audience aren't Jews. He's writing to Romans. He's writing to Gentiles like us. They didn't know who the Sadducees were, so Mark didn't bother to tell them about it. The Sadducees only get one mention in Mark in chapter 12, which we'll come to in July. Here, Matthew talks about The Sadducees, these two religious teams, we'll leave that aside. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. These two people hate each other, by the way. The Pharisees and the Sadducees cannot stand each other, but they get together to criticize Jesus. And Isn't that always the way? The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Very similar to Mark. Jesus replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus says to these guys, you guys can tell the weather by looking at the sky, but you can't look at my miracles and know what's happening in the world. What's wrong with you people is what he's saying to them. You can guess tomorrow's weather by what the sky is doing, but you can't see what God is up to when he's doing it right in front of your faces. In verse 4, he says, A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it. That's the same as Mark. But here in Matthew's version, he adds, Except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Again, here's the difference between the two Gospels. Mark is writing to Gentiles who don't know the Old Testament. They don't know the story of Jonah. And Mark doesn't want to have to explain to them the story of Jonah. So he leaves that bit out. When Matthew tells the story, he says, You'll be given the sign of Jonah. 
Matthew's writing to Jewish people who do know their Old Testament, who do know what Jonah's about, and so the Jews are assumed to know, and it gets mentioned to them. And all the Jews in the congregation would have gone, oh, the sign of Jonah. They would have learnt that in their Sabbath school. So I'm going to take this opportunity here from Matthew. Mark, pointing us to Matthew, I'm going to take this opportunity to do something unprecedented here in my time at the church. Next time I preach, I will preach from the Old Testament. I got a woo. I got one woo. The rest of you are happy with Mark. That's good to know. Because here we get a pointer back to the Old Testament. We're going to spend a couple, we're going to spend at least one week in Jonah when I come back to preach. Next week, Tabitha's preaching. Then we'll speak from Jonah. Then we've got Don Hargraves the week after that uh, to preach that week. And after that small break from Mark, we'll get back to it because we've got to finish chapter eight before Christmas. Anyway, in brief. The sign of Jonah is that this guy was thrown off a boat to drown. And three days later, he came back to complete his mission. Three days later, he came back to complete his mission. When Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah, he's talking about someone coming back from the dead after three days. This will be the only sign given to this generation, this type, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, you guys aren't going to get nothing until you see me come back from the dead. And we'll read in Acts that some of the Pharisees and some of the Sadducees come to believe in the resurrected Jesus. Anyone else, he says, anyone who wants to see a sign, are welcome to come with me and witness what I'm doing. But you don't get to stand on the sidelines and make demands. Jesus' mission is more important than the temptations and the threats of these religious leaders. He left them. He got back in the boat and he crossed over to the other side. Back to where the people wanted to see him, wanted to hear from him, wanted to spend time with him. Are there any questions this morning? We don't have a lot of time today, so just a few quick questions. I don't see any hands. Oh, yes, Maureen. Groups of 50 and 100, yep. Undoubtedly. Uh, so the, Maureen's saying, in the first story of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus has them sit down in 50s and 100s. And when I preached on that sermon that week, you'll remember that I talked about that as being a link back to the Old Testament stories. I imagine Jesus did the same thing here. It's just not written down in the gospel because they knew there were 4,000 people. They must have been able to count the groups to know how many people were there. So I imagine he did exactly the same way. It's just not recorded in Mark in that level of detail. Uh, And as to the little boy bringing the the bread, that's only recorded in John. It's not in the other Gospels. Uh, But yes, maybe here, maybe they've pinched the bread off another little boy. Again, it's not told to us. That detail only comes from us having the multiple sources. That's why the good thing about having the four Gospels telling the same story from different angles is that they all tell, they add a little bit here and there. and We get a fuller picture of what happened. Thank you for your question. Any others? No? We'll conclude. Sometimes we make demands of God. Um, there's a, famous, a cartoon which was popular when I was a kid. Of a, some sort of disaster is happening on the hill and it's being announced on the news 
and the mother of the cartoon family kneels beside the table and says, oh God, if you save my family from this, I'll, I'll give good cans to the can drive. I won't just give them creamed corn anymore. I'll give the good stuff. Um, and sometimes we do that. We make deals with God. God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. Or we make demands of God. Prove yourself to me. People so arrogantly, the atheists and the scholars and all those saying, well, if God was real, strike me dead with lightning. And of course, he doesn't. And they go, aha, that proves God's not real. Or it just proves that God doesn't want to strike them dead with lightning at that particular point. If you do this, I'll do that, God, they say. And here in this story, we have the Pharisees coming to Jesus and saying, prove yourself to us. Show us that you are the real Messiah. And Jesus might have said to them, and what will you do in response? What they might do in response is kill him before he's ready. They don't want a Messiah. They don't really want a Jesus kind of Messiah. They want their kind of Messiah. Jesus doesn't want to be their kind of Messiah. Sometimes we want our kind of God. Our God doesn't necessarily want to be our kind of God. He wants to be his kind of God. He wants us to get in line with him. Jesus is real and is active in the world. But if we sit by with our arms crossed and making demands, we may well miss it. In our 21st century today where people always have a thing in their ear talking or singing or doing some music or there's always something on the internet, there's always something to watch on TV or something to do, there's always somewhere to go. Sometimes we don't get bored enough to stop and listen for the voice of God. We expect God to turn up with fireworks and visions of splendor and the whole thing. More often than not, God turns up in a small, still voice. We make the effort to go to where he is. So how do we get involved? How do we find Jesus? How do we get close and hear his voice? What do we need to do? I'm glad you asked. As we talk every week about our faith fingers, the ways in which we can grow in our faith, this is a good place to start. You want to hear the voice of God? Well, get alone quietly with the Scriptures. I strongly encourage people to read the Gospel of Mark. Why? Because it's the best Gospel. Because it's the shortest. I was talking to a man, I don't think he's in the room, so I can make this point. I was talking to a guy this week, and uh, a few weeks ago, and he was saying, um, I was saying, what are you reading in the Bible? He says, oh, I'm reading Proverbs. And I felt like saying, why on earth are you reading Proverbs? Read something with Jesus in it. If you're going to read Proverbs, that's fine, but read some Jesus stuff as well. If someone came to you and said, I want to be a Christian and I want to follow Jesus, you wouldn't say to them, well, go and read Leviticus, would you? I wouldn't. Go and read Lamentations. That'll get you a good start. No, you want to hear the voice of Jesus? Read the words of Jesus. Yes, it's all the word of God. I absolutely endorse and believe that it's all divine. It's all scripture, but some bits of it are more useful than others. Song of Solomon, probably don't read if you're just a new Christian. Start with Jesus. Start with Jesus. Get alone and listen to his voice. Having that trusted person, finding that person you can go to and talk about these things. If you're struggling in your faith, reach out to someone and say, can we have a talk about God? Can we have a conversation about these things? Can we go deep on these things? I encourage you to do that.
Be a part of a small group. Find some people who you can discuss the scriptures together. Your walk is not a solitary walk. We're all of us listening for the voice of God together. Find a group. Go on mission. Contribute. Go to where people are actively serving Jesus' people. Whether that means volunteering at a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen or volunteering in a place where people are serving the people in poverty, whether it means going on a mission trips overseas, going helping the people in the Solomons or the islands or wherever in the world, if you want to hear, see God at work, go to the front line. Go to where God is at work. I've got a chap up the back this morning. I put that piece of band. He's got some flyers that ask people, where will you spend eternity? We'll have a pile of flyers there. You might like to take some this morning. Put them in your wallet. Hand them to people. We live in a street. Put a hundred of them in the neighborhood boxes around. Point people towards Jesus. And as you walk in the way of Jesus, you will hear Jesus' voice. and You'll see the miracles of Jesus. And, of course, church. Church is a great place to come. Hear the words of Jesus, where we can pray for each other, where we can care for each other, where we can study the scriptures together and talk about Jesus together. You got questions? Church is a great place to ask them. If you need a miracle, church is a great place to reach out and ask for prayer. The song I've chosen this morning to conclude with is based on this on this very passage about Jesus breaking the bread of life. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. We want to encounter the real Jesus. We want him to come and speak to us. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is and what he has done for us. Father God, this morning we want to encounter the real and living Jesus. Father, this story reminds us that even when the stories are repeated and we hear them again, They're there for a reason. We can hear your voice. Father God, help us to hear your voice this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.